Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are very grateful. The many things you have done for us, the grace you have offered us, the world you have given us to live in, the good gifts, we'd ask that you would open our minds to your son's instruction this morning. Help us understand how to live the rest of our lives pleasing to you. In your son's name, amen. Now, I was thinking, I was thinking about, well, last, last Sunday I preached on Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And you shall love the Lord your God. And that passage. And then I would jump to Mark 12, where Jesus, when asked by a Pharisee um, or a scribe, uh, what was the greatest commandment? Jesus quotes that verse out of Deuteronomy. So we were thinking about that, and I'd been thinking about some other passages, and I, as I rolled out of the sack this morning at whatever time it was, it was ungodly, it was dark, um, I found myself looking at Matthew 22, actually Matthew 23, um, which has... No, Matthew 22, which has the same answer to this question about the greatest commandment. Well, I said, that's odd. My Bible had just sort of opened to this other gospel. And I looked down at 23 and it has these warnings to the Pharisees. But, so this is on my mind for that reason. But I wanted to, the initial part of this, you'll see I have Matthew 22 here at the top. And there's verse 15, there's verse 18, there's verse 23, 29, 33, 41, 40. I cut a lot of Bible out because I didn't want to deal with the circumstance. I wanted you to see something going on here. Now, what has happened right before uh, this top verse is Jesus has been telling a number of parables. If you look at the synoptic gospels, you'll see this one is about the two sons, one who disobeys, one who obeys. The one who disobeys is the one who said he would obey, and the one who obeys is the one who said he would disobey. And then he has the parable about the wicked tenants who beat up the messengers of the master of the vineyard. Then there's the parable of the marriage feast, the people who won't come to the marriage feast <clears throat> when they're invited. And in verse 45 of chapter 22, where am I? Not verse 45 of chapter 22, 45 of chapter 21. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. But when they tried to arrest him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. So that's our circumstance. A few parables have been said. The people in religious authority had uh, picked up on it. It's always, it's always difficult when you're a, you know, maybe when you're, I don't know, because I've never been a traveling prophet, an evangelist going from revival to revival, where you lambaste the religious leaders of the day who were sitting on stage with you. Never really happens. They pick up on it. They get offended. They don't invite you back. It's very hard to pick up a, a sermon 
that goes after religious leadership because usually the person delivering said sermon is in religious leadership. So you're going to get a chance to say, Evan, this is exactly like you. You are a bad person. Because it's going to be about the Lord's thinking about what do, how do we deal? Have you ever been embarrassed about the way the church and the nation is run by different denominations, different groups? Ever, you know, you get somebody you really kind of like, and then you realize, oh, you find out something. It's always failing in religious leadership. There's always, you know, like, like comets on fire hitting the earth. So I wanted you to look at what was going on in chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and took counsel how to entangle him in his talk. So they realized Jesus had got a ministry that's kicking them in the shins. They want to do something, but they're afraid of the crowd. So what did they do? They start a series of theological arguments. Social policy, Christian social ethics, or, or, or ethical uh, views of government and taxation. And that's when they bring up, you know, should we pay taxes? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? It doesn't start out well. They already knew the, the parables were about them. They come and ask a legitimate theological question. And you will notice this rotates between theological groups. This is all like in a day. It, it, it lets you know in verse 23. The same day, the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. Matthew lets you know what theological camp the Sadducees are. There are two major camps in, in, in Judea, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There are a few others, but these are the major ones. The Sadducees are the priestly sect. They don't believe in the resurrection or uh, in spiritual life, uh, spirits and people. Uh, no heaven, no afterlife. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were lay people. They weren't priests. But they were really, really devoted to the law in such a way that they built a huge system of, of keeping the law of God. So you notice, on one, and they don't like each other at all. You can start a riot easily between these two groups. When Paul was under arrest in Acts, and he's before the Sanhedrin, and he noticed there's Sadducees and Pharisees there. All he has to do is say, on account of the resurrection of the dead, I'm here among you today. And the Pharisees go, well, I kind of like this guy. And the Sadducees go, we hate this guy. And a fight breaks out, and the Romans have to rescue Paul from the riot. They really don't like each other. This is like Calvinism, Arminianism. This is like dispensationalist and everybody else. Um, this is like, uh, what other, um, Presbyterianism and prelacy. I don't even know what that last one was. Prelacy, you know what Presbyterians are? Okay, well, Presbyterian is a form of church government. Um, uh, prelacy is the Episcopal or Catholic. It has to do with prelates, that you have a church hierarchy, and you, your vicars are representatives of the hierarchy rather than presbyters out of your, you know, your, your body, elders. People fought wars over that one. 
Well, this is, what you, this is the moment you have. Jesus has just given, he's got a crowd following, he's teaching the parables. The religious leaders are overhearing this, and they go, okay, all right, we've got to do something. Pharisees step into the breach first and try to get him on the taxation issue. He calls them names and leaves them going, what just happened? So the Sadducees walk up with their theology fully loaded, the question they ask is the one about the woman with the seven husbands. You know, each one died on her and the next brother married her and, and it was supposed to be a trick question. And, and uh, well, Jesus, if there's a resurrection from the dead, uh, which one is she married to? She had seven husbands. And I like the Lord's response, verse 29. And Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He calls the, Phar the Pharisees hypocrites. You're going to find out later that there's a, there's a kind of a difference in Jesus' opinion between Sadducees and Pharisees. He liked one group better. The Pharisees are hypocrites. The Sadducees are fools. You don't know the scriptures. I think in one of the synoptics it says... Is not this why you were wrong? You neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. So I'm not telling you the answers to these. I want you to see that there's this tension. The theological groups of leadership, the highly reverenced people in the society. When the crowd heard it, verse 33, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. I guess they had just gotten the, their mom put a band-aid on their alley from the first conversation. They came back and realized their arch enemies had been just routed before Jesus. And so they come back. Verse 41. And in, and in that, when they come back, it says, while they were... Um, they, they're coming together. And I sort of pictured the moment, wherever they're standing, um, that people are milling about. Jesus is teaching certain people. And um, let's see if it tells us where he was. Earlier in 21, he's in the temple. So people are milling about. Might be the temple here in one of the porticos. And the, the, the colonnades that support the outer wall of the temple are schools of religious thought where various rabbis would teach. So Jesus is in this circumstance as a teacher, and so these other groups are rushing in and out to answer him, to ask him tough questions. And so when you hear down the line, the Sadducees just got beat up. The Pharisees start coming back for their turn. And that's when, when we covered last week, that one guy asked him about the greatest commandment. So first we had, do I pay my taxes? Is there an afterlife? What's the greatest commandment? Now in some of these cases, as you put the, the synoptics together, just like he calls them hypocrites back at verse 18, they're there to entangle him, hopefully get him arrested. You don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. In the Luke account of that, that answer to the Sadducees, one of them says, teacher, you have spoken well. Some of the Sadducees, some of the Pharisees are hearing what Christ is doing and are impressed by it. 
When we read that passage out of Mark 12 last week, Jesus looks at this guy who agrees with him and says, you are not far from the kingdom. So some of these people, it's not all enemies of Jesus, but they're different theological camps of religious teachers. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? So whether they ask him a question, whether he asks them a question, everything's difficult for them. Every, the crowd is marveling at what's going on, or open Sadducees and open Pharisees are marveling at what Jesus can do. But there's a number, the majority, are hating what is being done to them. It says, verse 46, now I'm not giving you the answers to any of these questions. You've probably heard about them before. You can go back and read the, the little discussion that Christ has on the render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What the thing is about the resurrection what the thing is about the great commandment, what their answer was to his question. But theirs wasn't, verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now that's the setup. Jesus has got a general ministry that's undercutting the religious leadership when he's teaching the crowd in parables. They take umbrage at that. They try to take him out with some difficult theological questions, they thought. He makes the crowd more, more, marvel at him more, and they are less dis left discomfited. Feel free to use that in a sentence a couple times today. Discomfited. And then Jesus says, and this is the point that I wanted to get to. I just wanted you to know what world it was happening. The next verse, chapter 23. Then, Jesus, then said Jesus to the crowds and to his disciples. Because everybody else is standing around watching this go on. The religious leadership is running in and out of the conversation, in order, throwing questions at him, failing to answer his questions, not like how they're being treated. And they're the highly respected leaders. They're the priestly families in the Sadducees. They're the most obedient to the law people. To the rest of the people that are listening, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. He does not include the Sadducees. The scribes were a separate functionary sort of uh, a group, but they're not the Sadducees. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach but do not practice. Now you go back to verse 18 of the previous chapter up at the top, it says, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? He's saying the same thing again. He's to the Pharisees, up there in verse 18, he's to the Pharisees. He's speaking about the Pharisees here. Now, but he's, he's handing us, the crowd, his disciples, a, a, a way of viewing this. I mean, who are these people? You ever feel that somewhere in a Christian bookstore land, that somewhere there is 
a committee that votes who's going to be a famous pastor and who's going to get the publishing contracts and who's going to be speaking in all the conferences and who's going to have mega church. And you've heard of mega church. This, by the way, is not a mega church. I haven't bothered to count this morning. Uh, it might hurt my feelings, but uh, looks like about maybe 50. What do we say? That doesn't. Mega. I don't, what does it kick in? Mega. Oh, thousands, isn't, isn't it? Wouldn't it be thousands? You have to. We have some nods here. People who've actually been to mega churches. I have not even been to one. They think I might hurt the attendance, so don't let me in. Um, ever wonder where these people come from? I mean, in, in each camp of theology has its own system. Each publishing house has its own way of grabbing and, and building and advertising. And there are names I could mention to you. I don't want to. I don't want to slander somebody unnecessarily. But there are famous Christians. You might have some of their books on your shelf. Now, the problem is, we sometimes find that we've been assigned Christian leadership for the world by some group we didn't have anything to do with. We never met the man's wife. We don't know whether his children are obedient. And all of a sudden, we're told that he's supposed to be teaching me all sorts of things. I remember, I think I've told you this before, we used to sell a book called Magnificent Marriage, InterVarsity Press, not we, uh, the ministry I was in, until um, we found out the guy who wrote it had been having an affair with his secretary for seven years. Magnificent Marriage. Really good book on marriage. We stopped selling it. Not because he was giving bad advice, but because he was a hypocrite. And I would recommend that Christians, like he's recommending here, observe what they tell you. One of the benefits of having skilled, professional people that have gone after this information is they can bring information to you that you don't have. They can analyze and research and do the scholarly heavy lifting and write a book about the, a commentary on the book of Acts that will be a real benefit to you because it tells you things you would never find from history, from languages. They do have a benefit for you. But that doesn't mean they're a good we should encourage because they're also hypocrites. You said everyone, Evan? No, not everyone. Not every Pharisee was a hypocrite. But in general, Jesus had a pretty dim view of them, even though he thought they were the more correct theological party on the, on the, on the stage. For they preach but do not practice. They bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with their finger. It's amazing how easy it is in Christian teaching to craft systematically a kind of lifestyle for you that I think I've done my part when I crafted it and put it on your shoulders and watch you stagger out under the weight. Not you, Ann. Your, back, your back's bad, so maybe next Sunday. 
Now, we have this problem where the leadership is pushed into our lives by their own devising. Pharisees were self-appointed. Sadducees had politically wormed their way into dominating the priestly class in Israel. Nobody was choosing them because of, you know, a vote in the congregation of the saints. No, you got to be a Pharisee if you chose to be a Pharisee. And they spent their time not doing in their life what they ought to be doing. St. Paul was a Pharisee. And he said in Romans 7 that he loved the law of God, but he couldn't do it. He knew what it was right to do, but he couldn't do it. He could have all this outward performance that looked like he was blameless with, according to the law, but his, internally he was a mess. What is happening? Why are these people even there? Why do they, where do they come from? Is it we turn over a rock and they all came out and now we've got Christian leadership? Did you ever think somebody in the Middle Ages looked at the papacy and went, where did that come from? Just a bunch of guys with gold hats who just don't tell me they're in charge? Big fancy building? They must be in charge. It's a big fancy building. They must be in charge. They're the priests. They must be in charge. They say they know a lot. Jesus says, divide your opinion. Look at what good they can bring you in their teaching, but ignore them as spiritual leadership. Because they're not up to the kind of spiritual leadership the church needs. Or someone who pursues God needs. They're always contending. And why do you think they're doing it? Was it because they want to be absolutely obedient to Jesus? No. Because they're not obedient to Jesus. We keep seeing Christian leadership drive their moral lives into a wall. And suddenly you find there is a questions about their academic credentials. Saw that just this week. Another famous Christian leader whose academic credentials that have been claimed might not be actual. I just have that little lie following you around for a, for a lifetime of ministry and then have the, all the blocks knocked out from under you. Somebody writes all the books on marriage and then finds out he is not faithful to his wife. Why are they there? You know why they're there? Because power and fame are there. And when you have power and fame, it is not wrong to be famous, it is not wrong to have power. Jesus is famous, right? What did you say? We still know about him. North Idaho, 2,000 years later. That's pretty famous. Jesus was famous, but because of fame and because of power, there are certain people who are really interested in those things. Look at verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by men. All their deeds to be seen doing it. Because their hypocrisy, the only thing that looks like it's real, is the performance they're doing for you. I remember, I don't know how many years ago, and I don't even know which pope it was. I'm old enough to have seen a number of popes. But the pope was about to wash the feet of the some homeless guy. I, and so thousands of cameras, one. 
Pope is resplendent in gold. Gold hat, gold staff, gold flip-flops, I don't know. He drops to his knees in front of a homeless guy and he washes the man's feet in his gold-encrusted thousand photographers catching the moment to be sure that we see. Well, I'm, I'm sure if I met this pope or the last pope or any pope, it'd probably be nice guys. I don't probably nice guys. I'm sure every popular evangelical speaker. But watch out, says Christ. There are people that you think you should admire spiritually because they brought a good to your life. The Pharisees and the scribes brought a good that you should listen to. But you should not view them as spiritual men. Because they do their deeds to be seen by men. And when someone has stepped into the world of fame and leveraging that fame to sell more books, to be asked to more conferences, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. These are vestments. Phylacteries are the, 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 the uh, strings that are used to, uh, it's part of the garment where they tie the law to themselves. Because the, it said, you shall bind these things as frontlets to your eyes and on your, on your hand. And so they really would. And, and they, would they would have these, like vestments, people, different churches have vestments. And, and, and I know, I have some friends who are Church of England, and they, they get into it. I mean, they, they fight over whether or not this chaucible, or my or freeze, or too resplendent. You don't even know what these words mean, right? Chaucibles, ofries, resplendent. But they, they are in, and what day, how many days, how many Sundays before Michaelmas are we allowed to wear this chaucible? They make whole schools of thought over which clothes they wear. This is in the Christian church. Some of these guys are actually Christians. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and salutations in the marketplace. Hey, pastor! And I have no objection to a clerical collar. You know, the little white thing that you see Anglicans running around in. But I'm suspicious. I'd be suspicious of me. Wearing the dang thing. Because all of a sudden it's like wearing a sheriff's uniform. I'm the sheriff of God. <laughs> and, and people always have that Father Brown or uh, what was the, the, the Boys Town type movies or uh, Bing Crosby. Uh, he always played Father So-and-So. And it was always that wise person with the collar. And you'd always say, hey Padre. We'll get to that in a moment. They love being called rabbi by men. Rabbi just means teacher. Because that little move, instead of Evan, it's teacher. Don't call me pastor. I am a pastor. I mean, that's what you're, but I'm not pastor. Pastor Evan. Rabbi Evan. Or even teacher Evans is around Jewish. But it just means teacher. Don't call me that. Not because... I wouldn't enjoy being famous. I would. I would be sorely tempted to wallow in it. 
have my picture really big on the back of my books, looking thoughtful. <laughs> now, you know I've practiced. I have mirrors and I have a pipe and I can, I can remove my glasses and clean them while talking to someone. It shows I, I really am ready for this. These guys are in this business, not because they don't really make an offering. At least the Pharisees and the scribes, the Sadducees, are out to lunch. Okay? So I would say to you, if you wanted to apply this, yes, read the books by the believing, conservative Christian authors. Do not read the books or believe anything said by some honky. I mean a liberal. That's why I think of the Sadducees as the liberals didn't believe in the resurrection. People who don't believe the Bible, I don't listen to. You need to know the scriptures nor the power of God. So generally the liberal theologians don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. The conservative ones, you can actually pick up their books and get some good things out of it. And again, I don't want to mention names. You know some famous people that you've read. God bless you, read them. But then say, what are they? Is this another one of that set of people that's going to, that's self-appointed into the world, that has made, that has found they enjoy? I was in a situation not long ago where someone, some Christian was insisting on being called doctor because they'd gotten a PhD. Somebody said, hi, I'm so-and-so, no, doctor. What are you, prissy? You're just a guy. And Jesus says, they love being called rabbi. And then he says, what well, we're not really ready to obey, you are not to be called rabbi. To the, to the followers of Jesus. That's why I say, don't call me that. You are not to be called that. Because when you get called that, you don't recognize the truth and you start to dwell on the sense of being lifted up. Because there is a sense of being lifted up. There are two steps between where I'm standing and where you're sitting. That alone. Now, I'm no egalitarian, you know that. But I want you to know that things occur. I have got the pulpit. My voice is amplified. I have been pastor of this church for, what year is this? 15, 25 years. It's still only 50 people. Not that I'm complaining. All these little things are temptations in front of men who have learned and try to teach the word. You need people who have learned to try to teach the word. And even the hypocrites might be a benefit to you. But Jesus gives us instructions. And in those instructions you find out that these leaders are probably living something other than the Christian life. They're living a life about Christianity that's the life of celebrity and fame. It's self-advancement, success in the profession. You saw what happened in the Church of England when it got professionalized clergy. People weren't actually believing it, but there were paid positions you could get. And so people went for them. 
They love advancement. They love fame, they love reputation. The presence of the power structures are which, those of us who do not like the federal government, can I see a show of hands? Um, who don't like the federal government, why don't we like the federal government? Because that bureaucracy out there, every desk in Washington, D.C. has a six-figure salary attached to it. Guess what? People apply for those jobs. They love to get a government job. You just end up walking into the belly of the beast and collecting a lot of money. And the same is true in the church. Power structures need, well, they create the temptation, and then that has to be protected. Look at the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They do not like Jesus. Jesus is walking in. I do not want to compare him to Donald Trump, so I'm going to compare him to Ben Carson. Because I don't think he's like Donald Trump. He's not quite as naive as Ben Carson. And he calls people hypocrites. But they don't like outsiders. Because why don't you like outsiders? You are threatening the very thing they serve, which is not Jesus Christ. It's the power structure. And if I sound like some sort of radical Marxist up here, you know, the, the power structure. I'm a utilitarian. I don't think we've got to go fix it. You just got to be aware of it. Jesus didn't attempt to tear apart the Pharisees and destroy their system, or tear apart the Sadducees and destroy their system. He just warned people. Listen to what they say. Do what they say. Don't do what they do. They are not people who are living for God. They are people who have made a profession that serves their desire to be lifted up by giving you stuff that is really actually beneficial. But they must protect what gives them what they want. So they got to get you to join their movements. Whatever the denomination, whatever the grouping, the more people they can get in the base of their pyramid, the more it rewards what they actually want. Because once a preacher of the gospel realizes that serving God does not change whether he's successful in numbers or not, because you could be most successful in numbers or not, and a preacher of the gospel doesn't say, oh, I failed, when it's not. But people who have made their living in religion based on the reward of being known the reward of getting the best seats and the invitations and the picture on the back of the book they wrote and an advance on the book they wrote. They need to have people believing in the movements. You have to believe that what they have done, you wondered where they came from, which rock they crawled out from under, why you keep getting embarrassed by the behavior and they keep getting self-assigned to this world and you wonder where but we keep them there because we still consider all of their behavior the leadership of the faith. Christ said, don't look at what they do. They are not leaders. As Christ would have a leader. When it says in 1 Peter, you obey your leaders in the Lord, or you, you, you rule the flock that is in your charge if you're a pastor, not as one domineering over the flock, but setting an example. The only kind of leadership Christian leaders should have is exemplary and these men don't have exemplary lives. Matter of fact, fame kind of forbids exemplary life. 
What if you had, what if you were famous, Christian, for being a Christian? No, let's have it be me. I'm famous as a Christian. And let's say my wife was still happy, my children were still obedient, and I didn't have a drug problem. And I wasn't chasing around women. Everything was still okay, but I'm famous. So none of you know who I am. You can't see me as exemplary. You don't know what the example is. You don't know to believe the dust jacket on the back of the book. Because you don't really know. St. Paul could tell the saints, you know what sort of life I lived when I was among you. That's what he could tell you. And in this, we're being told to back away from the fame structure, the power structure servers, accept their benefit professionally, but don't accept their leadership spiritually. There's something going around, and I, it's called the Benedict Option. Been in a few social conversations about it. Uh, Rod Dreher of uh, American Conservative um, came up with it. He's a Greek Orthodox thinker. And the Benedict Option is off of, not Benedict Arnold, but uh, St. Benedict, who founded the Benedictines, early, early, early Middle Ages, where the first monastic order. And in the idea of the Benedict Option is all of the frustration that Christians are feeling looking at the world going to Hades in a handbasket. The Benedict Option says, why don't we just back off from trying to fix the world and fix our immediate culture right around us, just us. Just Moscow, just this church, just this family. So the degree to which you back away, you're called Benedict because it's sort of stepping away like the monastics did. They stopped trying to change the world. They were in flight from the world. But the Benedict Doctrine is largely having given up on the world as being something we can fix. They stopped marching in the streets. They stopped trying to change votes in the Congress. They chopped China have Supreme Court decisions go the Christian way, not the non-Christian way. That's a different sort of thing. This is stepping away. I'm suggesting we do that to the church. Not to the federal government. You can do that to the federal government if you want. But that the church is as much service to the ideas of power, and the ideas of reward for fame, and we're being told that these are our, our spiritual guides. Call no man rabbi. You have one teacher. Who's that? And you are all brethren. Oh, and besides that? And call no man your father on earth. And you say, oh, except for a priest, right? That's exactly who you may not call father. Okay? Exactly. Anyone who steps forward in your life as a spiritual guide... You may not call rabbi, you may not call father, and there's a third one there. Neither be called masters, for you have one master, the Christ. Oh, but we'll translate it into other words. Pope. Il Papa. It's father. And a Catholic priest, a father. Father, it's only polite, call him Father, right? Don't Benedict option that one. No, we're not playing the game no more. 
We're not going to part. We'll buy your book because we think you know a lot about Latin. We'll buy your book because you did some research on the Assyrians that I'd like to pick up on. You might have even had a great understanding of the sweep of the book of Colossians. Thank you very much. But no, I don't care that you're a doctor. I don't care that you want to think of yourself as a rabbi. I was told by Jesus Christ, I may not call you one. I was told by Jesus Christ, I may not call any Catholic priest or any cult leader anywhere, Father. I may not call anybody Master, even if it's Magista. You say, can I get a Master's? As long as it's not in religion. <laughs> if you get a Master's in, I don't know, Ag, you know, really interesting, where nobody wants to call you master anyway. It's amazing how these are the places, religion is the place, where the people both love these titles, they love them in the philosophy realm, they love them in the religion realm, they love to be rabbis. Oh, rabbi. Oh, it's just like chocolate for the person whose life, religious life, is being led by an entirely different model than Christianity. Because Christianity, verse 11 and verse 12, is he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Deny them what they want. Don't they live off of the rest of the church thinking that somewhere, at some special place, at some special seminary, all these jobs were awarded to the best and the brightest, and that meant, whether it's Catholic or whether it's Protestant or whatever else, don't play the game. Go Benedict on it. Back away. Live Christianity as it should be lived, taught by your Lord. Now, I was just forced to read by Jacob, Jake Sandmeyer because I'm afraid of him. He forced me to read some Kierkegaard, and Kierkegaard is against the church, or against Christendom, was it called? Oh, man, he just, he's all over this. You guys do not understand what Jesus Christ taught to be a Christian. Why don't we be Christians instead of everything the state Lutheran church was, had done to Christianity? He saw this huge divide. People didn't listen to him either. Jesus Christ teaches the same thing. Since numbers matter to them, they are going to try and stop you from destroying their monopoly on spiritual leadership. The Sadducees did, the Pharisees did, the scribes did, because Jesus was walking in with a real spiritual change. And he saw right through them, and he told people not to award them the kind of thing they served. But they've got to keep you in the ranks. They've got to keep you thinking that Christianity, if we don't win against the Muslims, oh my gosh. We already won against the Muslims. Jesus Christ was victorious on the cross. Done. There could be 12 of us at the end of the world who are Christian. We still won. But numbers matter to them. And hypocrisy 
is protected by them because hypocrisy, which eventually happens because if it's not really Christianity as lived by the Holy Spirit, they're going to have a mistress someplace. They're going to have some dirt. They're going to have some greed. They're going to rip somebody off. They will falsify their credentials because that's what evil men do. And they've got to cover the hypocrisy up. Because that can destroy the whole edifice. But you don't have them as rabbis. You have Christ and God the Father. And you should be, when it tells you in James, and I've, I know I've mentioned this before, this is a Bible, okay, in case you were concerned. Um, James chapter 3, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. The wisdom, this wisdom is not such as comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And we stand here in the trenches being led by these people who write the books that we read and go, why are you acting so bad? Is this all we get? Is choosing between you, Yehus? Between the Sadducee and the Pharisee? Well, Jesus is able to. He say, you know, take the, the, the biblical thinker over the unbiblical thinker, but really, Christianity is built on different terms. But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason full of mercy and good fruits, without uncertainty or insincerity. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Don't take anything less than Christianity. Don't supplant Christianity with an institutional claim we're in charge of Christianity. I don't care what denomination, what group, what ministry, what parachurch group. Those are people who want your involvement because what they get out of God is that kind of profit. Better seats. Better seats, well-known name, getting called rabbi. That may mean that you will always be, wherever you go, wherever you move in life, that if you take the Benedict option, use this way in the church, that you're always stepping away from the most successful, glitzy thing that you might always be walking in the shadows of what is called Christianity because you're not playing the game that tempts men to reward themselves with fame. But you will have Jesus Christ and you will have a good conscience. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, guard us against these men. It's tiresome sometimes, Lord, listening to them fight. It's tiresome watching them fall from grace. We didn't pick them, Lord. We'd ask that we would seek your face. You are our teacher. You are our rabbi. God is our father. You are our master. Keep us there. In your son's name, amen.